Hi, you're listening to Avenue Insights. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Any views expressed in this podcast are based on information available at the time and are subject to change without notice. So uh, welcome back. Nice to have you back on the podcast. Hey, I'm excited to be back in the office more than uh, once per week. The quarantine period is uh, officially done. Matt's out of quarantine now. Um, So, you know, there's lots of things to talk about um, that we could... You know, obviously a lot's happened since the last time we did did a podcast together. I think the one thing that it might be interesting to start off on today is this dichotomy between what the economy is doing and what a lot of the economic data is coming out saying versus what we've seen in the stock market the last couple of months. And so obviously today, today was the first big down day in a while, but the stock market has had you know a pretty good run these last couple of months. At the same time, you know, the, the economy has really been horrendous. And so squaring those two things, I think, are things that people are having a tough time kind of understanding and getting a grip on. So how would you sort of frame that with some of the conversations that you've had and some of the things that you've been reading the last couple of months? Yeah, well, just to back up for a second, I mean, today was a horrible trading day after uh, the markets have gone up dramatically over the short term and you see markets taking a pause here. I don't think there was very much news-wise going on other than some more corona cases in Arizona and Texas and, and apparently in Arizona they don't believe in wearing masks. Mm. But uh, no. But to comment on, on what you had said about the economy and the stock market being two totally different things, I think that is the hardest part for any investor to intellectualize, even institutions to intellectualize that the economy and stock market have nothing to do with each other and you hear uh, everyone talking about well it might not be a v-shaped recovery it might be a u-shape or an l-shape and you say well i don't care what shape it is because it has nothing to do with the stock market and and why is that well there's several reasons one being interest rates interest rates are near historic lows so your alternatives to place cash are very limited to get the return profile you want. Central bank stimulus is a, uh, is a huge factor. Uh, and also you've created this whole retail phenomenon. I don't know if you saw this this week or last week. All these discount brokerages or online brokerages are allowing fractional share ownership, meaning what is, it sounds like a, a timeshare presentation, fractional ownership. So you can buy one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of Facebook shares, and you can take your $36 and trade it from your mom's basement and try to turn it into a million bucks. So you've seen volume recently uh, go up. But sorry, I, I, I'm rambling. But yes, the economy and markets are two different things. Uh, and you've also seen a real transfer of wealth from small and mid-sized business owners to corporate America. Yeah, so why don't, we, why don't we jump on that piece? Because I think this is another phenomenon that I think has happened the last couple of months. That I mean, I certainly don't think it was intended to work like this, but the reality of it for small businesses or medium-sized businesses right now, whether in <clears throat> Canada or in the U.S., it's obviously an incredibly difficult environment, uh, having to you know be shut down and then um, and really having no revenue for a lot of parts of the economy for the last couple of months. At the same time, companies like 
Walmart or Target or Home, De Home Depot, the, the really large retailers or the mega cap tech companies that you know, are able to actually thrive in this kind of an environment. Those are all you know, significant parts of the stock market. And in effect, on a net basis, have, have been positively impacted relative to the other small and medium-sized businesses that have been, you know, in a lot of ways decimated by this. Yeah, and so, so I think it's causing this huge chasm between what the local economies are doing, you know, small and medium-sized businesses are, and, and then what the stock market's doing. Or even more importantly, the indices are doing that are very concentrated, especially in the U.S., to big tech. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, no, a great example is Walmart. You've that's a fantastic example. You've shut down all of their competitors, and during this whole coronavirus, you could still buy from their garden center or, or walk around around and buy groceries or do any of these things. You've essentially put their competition out of business. Or let's use a, an example um, that's relevant to our portfolio, which would be CargoJet. You know, CargoJet, uh, you're delivering packages all around the country in a play on e-commerce that their business is not affected whatsoever it's almost from yeah, the it's coronavirus has been every day is christmas yeah. for cargo jet yeah i think the other thing too if we'll jump back to the point you made about um sort of this phenomenon <clears throat> that's kind of happened the last couple of weeks it started hitting some of the news wires about you know uh, i think i saw a huge ad in the paper a couple of weeks ago from charles schwab saying Exactly to your point, you can now own fractional shares of Amazon or Apple or Google or, or Facebook or the like. And so you can you, you know, take $10 from your paycheck and buy a fraction of a share, which has driven a lot of this retail kind of fanaticism towards some of these story stocks. But the other thing, too, is we've seen you know, the government supports uh, both in Canada and the U.S. have been pretty significant from a, a payroll perspective. Um, and, you know, more so in the U.S. where they're really just they're sending out checks to people. But a lot of people, I think you, know, you can see where that retail money has received these checks. Maybe they're still receiving some income from somewhere else. And now that money then goes into a discount broker account and yeah. then they go into buying some of these or, fractional shares. Or 80 percent of the population is still working. You've shut down the entire world, whether it's restaurants or travel or going out and doing different social things going to a concert or a hockey game you now have if you're employed and you've been staying home you actually have more money than ever before and i thought was quite fascinating william sonoma blew out their numbers because people are buying high-end home furnishings with with all their savings or to what we're specifically talking about they're investing that money in the stock market and now retail investors can participate in a way that they never were able to participate before. And that means whether it's taking your $1,500 um, government check and, and, uh, from this environment or whatever you want to call it, universal basic income, mm -hmm. and buying stocks. But uh, didn't you even get a check for $1,500 because you're a dual citizen? Yeah. So actually, uh, yeah. So it, it was fascinating uh, to receive this the other day. And so, yeah, for, for listeners that don't know me personally, I was born in Toronto and have lived here in Canada, but uh, through family, I'm also a dual citizen with the U.S. And so I received, you know, the economic impact payment letter from, you know, the IRS. Um, I guess anyone who files a uh, U.S. tax return or whoever filed last year received the same letter. And so to receive a letter in the mail along with a, a check for $1,200 US, irregardless of your circumstances, 
uh, or anything like that. It really is just a matter of if you filed a tax return last year. You know, I brought this into the office the other day and we showed everyone. And it, it's I, I, and then having sort of seen the headlines about all this retail investing phenomenon, you certainly can feel when you're given f what feels like free money, how people then would say, well, I'm going to go speculate or buy stocks or, uh, you know, speculate on, on certain a gambling attitude can take hold because it feels like free money. And for, like you said, 80% of the uh, economy is still working, is still employed. And so to send out additional money, you know, we would joke, I think even in previous podcasts about helicopter money. And this is, I mean, this is, this is helicopter money. And so it's, 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 it's a crazy experience to receive this. I'll go out in the limb and say this. I think universal basic income is here to stay. Maybe it gets pulled away temporary, temporarily, or you don't classify it as universal basic income. But if you look at the wealth disparity or things that are happening, happening politically, uh, especially in the United States, where people are, are very impoverished uh, and, and the economy is not doing well at all. Uh, and people, have, it, people that have lost jobs like right away. Lost jobs. Yeah. But uh, tying this all back to how does this benefit the stock market or how does this money end up back in the, in the stock market? Yes, um, having a universal basic income is extremely inflationary, number one. Or number two, people, uh, retail investors have more money or ways to partic participate and are sitting at home and trading stocks and, and your volume's gone up. But really, this rate's being brought down to where they are where institutions uh, or, or retail investors have nowhere else really to put their money and it's ending up in the stock market. And uh, why don't yeah. you comment on that specifically? Well, why don't we, yeah, so that on that point, uh, bringing, bringing rates down to zero, I think what's been unique about what central banks have done this time, uh, both the U.S. Federal Reserve and then the Bank of Canada now as well, is that they've both for the first time been interacting with the corporate bond market and so, and through buying of uh, both corporate bond ETFs and high yield bond ETFs, it's amazing how in March and the beginning of April, the bond market, which is a corporate bond market, which is companies, you know, accessing capital markets to borrow so they can either invest in their business or, you know, for ongoing working capital. But the bond market really got shut down because of all the volatility and the concerns over the recession, all of those things. There was very little liquidity. Very Not little no liquidity, liquidity and no issuance. So the yeah. companies couldn't come to market an issue. And so when the Fed announced uh, at the beginning of April that they were going to start buying both corporate bond ETFs and high yield bond ETFs, you had uh, a very quick reopening uh, of the bond market where companies could then come in an issue and there was a ton of liquidity that all of a sudden came back to the bond market. But, you know, w we got to this problem in March because of way too much corporate debt and overall debt in the system. And then we we're trying to solve the problem with, with even, more debt. even more debt. Yeah. And so you get back to this point of saying, you know, if you look at like, you know, no, too much debt wasn't the issue, but now the level of, the, I think the last couple of months you've had record issuance of corporate debt in the U.S., like I think ever. And so the Fed have now enabled this to happen again. And you can debate whether they should do this or not. And I know there's a lot of people that would make the argument, well, the, the Federal Reserve is bailing out Wall Street again and they're not paying attention to Main Street. And, you know, I'm absolutely sympathetic to that argument. I, I think the other side of it that 
I think people have to consider is that there's a lot of companies that if they weren't able to access the bond market to issue either short-term commercial paper or intermediate term bonds, you know, companies would be bankrupt within three months. You and wouldn't then, be able to roll your debt obligations. Or, and, or fund yeah. your payroll or your working capital. And then what that would mean is, is even more layoffs and, and job losses. So there's, there's this balancing act that... I, I think what you're saying is you, you're really far down the rabbit hole. Yeah, here, and, so. yeah, and you're creating all kinds of moral hazard that it's not... There, the, the knock-on effects of some of the decisions that have been made the last couple of months are things that we will now be dealing with you know, years on from this because I think that we've kind of crossed the Rubicon into this whole new world that is... It's going to be much more difficult for the Fed or the Bank of Canada to not be politicized and to not be sort of blamed on either side politically because of some of the things that they've done the last couple of months. Oh, yeah. And, and maybe for our listeners, if, you, if you're able to do this in a simple way, why don't you explain how money uh, with this quantitative easing or printing money effect or stimulus effect, how it's having less and less uh, impact or, or less effect on the lives of everyday citizens and how the majority of that money actually ends up in the stock market, or, or did I just throw you a curveball there? No, yeah. So to I explain think, it in very yeah. So I think the like the initial when the Fed uh, rolled out their quantitative easing in two thousand and nine, ten, eleven, it was sort of the initial shock, uh, shock and awe aspect of it. Um, sort of really, I guess at that time helped confidence. It helped boost asset prices. The whole idea of quantitative easing, I think the way Ben Bernanke, who was the former uh, head of the Fed, described it was that you sort of boost confidence through higher asset prices. You also boost uh, consumer confidence through the wealth effect. So, you know, uh, people's assets values goes up. They feel more confident. They then take that money, spend it in the economy. And it's supposed to be this circle of prosperity that happens through higher asset prices. But if you look at what's happened in the U.S. the last you know, couple of decades through each of the last few recessions is what happens is the, the wealth divide gets more and more extreme because people that own existing assets benefit from lower interest rates and you know, Federal Reserve support. So then you drive a further wedge in the have, you know, haves and have nots. Then you get into a recession and who gets affected first? It's the people that you know, don't have assets or don't have access to opportunity or access to you know, other things. And then, but at the same time, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is limited because all they can do is uh, you, know, you can lower interest rates or increase interest rates. You can liquefy the system, but the Fed can't print money and actually spend it on policy. That's where you know, Congress comes in and the fiscal authority. And so I think the problem is there's this political divide where everyone has their argument of what should be, where money should be spent fiscally. And then that gets you know, caught up in a political debate. So the Fed can't really implement that, but it's, it's easy for people to blame the Fed because they can be the punching bag. They basically have their hands tied behind their back all they can do is increase or decrease interest rates and you know liquefy the system and so they're kind of made out to be the bad people in the room but they're just trying to do you know the most that they can yeah so currently the market is looking past all this stuff saying you know looking out a year two years three years saying 
if interest rates are being brought next to nothing, and your real rate, meaning interest ra- real rates, meaning uh, your interest rate minus inflation minus taxes are negative, and if we're going to have such extreme policy uh, policy responses, uh, whether that's monetary policy or fiscal stimulus, markets are probably going much higher than here, and you have a handful of businesses that are going up where their cost of capital is next to nothing and they're able to fund themselves. And, and what do you think about the idea if we run into more volatility uh, or, or more stress on markets here that the Fed actually makes an announcement on capping 30-year interest rates? Yeah, so that's, I think that's, it, it was interesting. So uh, the Fed had a, a meeting yesterday and I think people were maybe expecting a little bit more from them than they gave. They, uh, you know, said interest rates are going to be where they are, which is basically zero for the next two or three years. But I think that this idea about uh, this term uh, yield curve control has kind of been put out there and they're sort of they floated the idea really the last couple of months. And it's kind of entering the sort of the um this, the sphere of debate and conversation. And so I think it really comes back to, you know, what's, what's unique about this period right now is that uh, if you look at debt to GDP in the U S it, it's back to uh, with, with the cares act and the, the deficit so far this year, it's back to a hundred percent of debt to GDP, uh, which is exactly where it was at through, sort of through the peak of world war two. And so you've, you've come back to that level where, the problem is at, at this level of overall debt and then also the structural nature of the U.S. deficit. So because they have so much locked in spending on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, all these things, you basically have deficits as far as the eye can see. And so the problem now is that the U.S. government uh, has no choice but to fund these uh, the spending um, and so they're going to have to do it through higher and higher deficits, which should push up interest rates in, yeah, a, in so a normal environment. If you keep on issuing debt and and uh, borrowing money, just like a retail investor can relate in the context of their own spending habits, if you're borrowing, borrowing, and you're not creditworthy, interest rates go up. But if you cap interest rates, then what happens? Yeah, so I think what, what would happen is you'd have to have – and you've kind of we've started to see this the last couple of weeks where longer term interest rates, so uh, both 30 year and 10 year interest rates have started backing up. So which means just moving higher and short term interest rates have stayed low. So that's called uh, like a, stirve, uh, a curve steepening. So you started to see that. So what I mean, what would happen is the bond market would sniff out. Wow, look at all this issuance coming. Uh, I'm not going to pay 2% for a 30 year knowing that they're going to have to issue another several trillion. So you interest rates would shoot up at the long end and then, but that then is destabilizing because, you know, credit cards, mortgages, all those things are priced off of longer term interest rates. So the fed, if, if, if long-term interest rates got out of control and just started shooting up, the fed, I think is would have to then step, step in and cap interest rates, which, which is the consequence of that is incredibly inflationary. It is because it's it's base it's basically the bond market's telling you that interest rates should be higher, and the Fed is saying no 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 interest rates are going to be locked at a certain rate whether it's two or three percent where they cap them, and so but but what's what's inflationary is the is the deficit 
and the, the government spending that is trying to push rates up and the Fed has to cap rates. And what's interesting is, you know, when you talk about inflation, most people think about the 1970s. And so, you know, you had high inflation and interest rates had to be taken up really high. And that was the last sort of big inflationary period. But if you go back to the, the highest inflationary period just prior to that, so the 1940s, 1950s, after World War II, the Fed did basically exactly the same thing that they're going to do this time, which is cap yields. And so if you look at, we were looking at this earlier today, but I think it's one of the most interesting charts I've seen because it, it tells you everything about what's going on right now and what is going to have to happen um, with the level of debt in the system. But if you look at where real yields were in the 1940s and 1950s, they got down to negative five, negative 10, I think almost negative 15% in a year, which is, so basically what happened was you had the Federal Reserve cap interest rates at 2%. And say, say inflation is 12%. So the 2 minus the 12 equals negative 10. So that's your negative 10 real rate. And so interest rates should have been rising in that period. But because the economy had to recover from World War II and they had to basically devalue their debt in real terms, they capped interest rates and you let inflation take off without interest rates sort of being the stopgap. And if you go back through history, like you referenced the 1970s, or even prior to that, when you've gone through these periods of time uh, where you have negative real rates, once again, real rates, negative real rates are inf uh, interest rate minus inflation, minus you can even throw on uh, taxes. But anytime you've gone through that environment, there, like a decade in the 1970s, gold went up eight 800%. 8X. Yeah, 8x. Yeah, I think what's interesting is when you look at it, the in the 40s and 50s, gold was still tied to the dollar. So gold wasn't allowed to free float. But there was the very famous example in the 30s when, maybe 1933, when FDR basically confiscated everyone's gold in the US, You know, basically made it illegal to own physical gold, uh, took it in, and then as soon as they took it all in, they devalued the dollar versus gold, which is kind of a huge way that they got out of the depression because it, was this huge monetary easing that the system needed. Um, and so in the 40s, you didn't have gold floating, free floating. So it, it would have been interesting to see what gold did in that kind of environment when real rates were that negative. But to your point, when you look at you know the 70s and similar thing happened where you had real rates go down to maybe minus four, minus 5%. And to your point, gold took off 8X. And so what, what's interesting about today is that I think you have the same, if not worse, uh, dynamics on the government debt to GDP side, and it's getting, you know, it's going to get even more out of control. And so I think that whether they like to want to or not, and I'm not sure if Jay Powell will be the Fed chairman to do this, but they're going to have to, they're going to have to devalue the value of that debt in real terms, which is, will be done through higher inflation and capped yields, which then, you know, if you look at the setup on gold uh, today, I mean, the chart, you know, we were looking at earlier, the setup oh, is exactly the same as the 70s. It, it is and it's, eerily similar. It, yeah. It's, it's, and, it's, um, so you can always make this argument to have 5, 10% of your portfolio in precious metals, especially going into an environment yeah. uh, like we I, are now. I think what's, what's interesting is, and when I have conversations with people about this, and we've sort of been in some of the same conversations where people... You know, there, there'll be a 10-year period where gold is actually the absolute last thing you want to own. 
and it has no value in your portfolio for you know any kind of diversification. And then there's you'll go through periods where gold is something you 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 know you have to own because of when you can see that it's sort of these dynamics happening where uh, you're going to have you know p- paper money get devalued against any kind of hard asset. And it's interesting how I think you know and we're definitely not gold bugs, but we just look at the scenario we can say well we know that it's some you know a sector that we want to have exposure to but you know and if things change we would just as quickly become negative on gold but it's interesting how how i think the entire you know large portion of the investment community is still scratching their head as to why they should own any gold or hard assets because yeah, stocks you, had you know stocks have done so well for the last decade but yeah but they forget where you've gone through periods of time where stocks don't do as well, or you go through a period of stagflation. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but you do want to own, own these things. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, if we were to wrap up on what, if you were to say some of the key things that you're looking at for the next few months to signal, you know, what direction, whether the, whether the markets head from here or, you know, are, are you, are you looking at um, sort of focusing on whether it's, you know, corporate earnings or are you expecting any announcements from the Fed or what would be your kind of your, you know, as we head through these summer months, what would be some of the things that you think yeah, so investors I think should I, be focused I, on? I think going in, well, one, you shouldn't be in the stock market unless it's long-term money and you're, you're buying quality assets or businesses and intellectually viewing it like a business owner and buying companies that are, that are profitable. But in the short term, I think we probably head into some volatility into the election. I think that is uh, a key catalyst. But I, I think if, if markets do uh, come off in any strong way, the policy response from the Fed will be quick and it will be severe. Mm-hmm. And uh, any of these things, whether it's uh, having universal basic income for longer or that gets put on the table or uh, or the Fed buying more assets, uh, or it, I think there's a lot of things that are on the table. Yeah. So I think, yeah. And I, I totally agree. I think that the policy response is going to be critical because it's, it'll be interesting to see how far they'll let the markets go, go down. If we go through a period of volatility before they come in with another round of stimulus or support, uh, yeah. and at what level. And you always hear then. about the talk about the market, the market. Well, it's, it's really important to understand what do you own? And why do you own it? What does Cargo Jet have to do with uh, you know small and, and mid-sized b- businesses or the current economy? Or what does Enbridge have to do with the virus? There, a lot of the businesses you own have some sort of stability or predictability in their cash flows. And I think with interest rates being where they are in this re-rating of valuations, that it, it, it's it's not ira- all the dynamics that are going on out there and you hear this word that markets are irrational I think it's completely rational considering the circumstances it doesn't mean it's it's you know not based on uh, always based on fundamentals or there isn't an air pocket in certain stocks or mm-hmm. sectors but you can understand why this is happening yeah and I think I think it's you know I keep coming back to the most important thing is you just have to you just have to follow and trust and respect the price action. And, and, uh, you know, a chart tells you a thousand words. And I think sometimes people try to frame a story about what should be happening because of X, Y, Z, rather than just saying this is happening and, and then trying to understand, you know, why, 
and it's kind of reversing, you know, how you think about it. No, absolutely. And uh, I hope you get some this free money that you're getting from Donald Trump. I think Trump even signed the letter. Do you sign it yeah, he signed, personally? He, he did sign the letter. I don't think the, the, the Donald. What a crazy yeah, guy. So it's, I think it's, this is, I think this definitely opened my eyes to what, what it feels like to get quote unquote free money. And you know, for retail, did you spend it on stocks? No, I haven't. I've, I've saved it. <laughs> you but, saved it. There yeah, you go. But anyway, so well, why don't we wrap it up on okay. that? And then uh, we'll look forward to the next, next chat. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find us on avenueinvestment.com where you can learn more about the topics discussed today at our blog or subscribe for updates to our content. You can also follow us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.